First Peter chapter 1. We don't have to worry about any videos crashing this weekend, so if you guys were around for that, Steve was uh, on video last weekend and it like wouldn't start, then it started, then it wouldn't finish, and I was like trying to save it, and I don't even know what I said last weekend, but uh, I hope you were entertained <laughs> by watching that, so... First Peter 1. Um, I'm actually going to go back to 13. We're going to read 13 all the way to, uh, to 21. Peter's writing some people who are in a very unfamiliar place. And they're not just on the margins. And they're not just kind of the, you know, the new kids on the block. And they're on the margins because of that. But they're already on the margins because they worship Jesus as Lord in a society that tells you you have to worship Caesar as Lord. And so they're already at the margins of society. And he writes to them in the midst of their trial and in the midst of their suffering. He says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. I've saved you from something. I've brought you out of something. A former ignorance. Now you know the truth. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Be set apart, be distinct. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Knowing this, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the, perishable, with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. A little bit more about this Jesus. Verse 20, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, for our sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. God, help me today. Um, in my own feeble attempt um, to, uh, to share these words um, as they're written here in Scripture and that we would get the sense of what Peter was originally trying to write to these, these believers and, God, what you are saying to us in the midst of our culture that we find ourselves in. Uh, we are your children, and uh, we are in exile here. Uh, so, Spirit, come and encourage my heart and give me clarity and and give all of us clarity as your word is preached. And, and may we just have ears to hear and listen to you and what you're saying uh, today. Amen. So the broad umbrella that Peter's writing under here is that we have a call, all who believe in and follow Jesus, to be distinct in the world, to be set apart. So in this passage where it says that um, we're calling you as obedient children to be holy... As your heavenly father is, is holy, sometimes what we do in the American church is we kind of slap like some just kind of like a, a, a American suburban church uh, things onto that, right? We think of like the don't drink, don't chew, and don't go with girls that do, right? Some of these like moral categories there. And uh, I'm not saying that these, these, some of these things aren't involved with that, but this idea of holiness is more of a, more of a set apart. Uh, the Puritans used to describe the holiness of God in this, not H-O-L-Y, but W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy other, distinct and set apart. And as the people of God, it's not just these one particular pet moral categories that we just kind of follow these little rules, but really we come to see that Jesus came to live, die, and rise again, and he has made a people. And our entire lives 
head, heart, hands, finances, our marriages, relationship, our words, everything that we do, material possessions, we do under the lordship of Jesus now. We just do it differently. We just do life differently. We're set apart. We're distinct. We love other things than this world loves. We love Jesus. We love God who's come to rescue us. And his word and his lordship and his grace is informing all of life. And so if you've grown up in a church where they reduced holiness to these few little moral categories, instead of seeing the lordship of Jesus over every aspect of your life, you're missing out on what that passage is saying. Be holy, be set apart, be distinct. In fact, let me show you something. Look at verse 2. Look at what he says. Is, does, does Peter roll out the chapter 2 verse 1? Does he roll out the don't drink, don't chew, and don't go with girls that do? No, what does he say? Put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. What is the holiness that Peter's describing here, right? Put away hypocrisy. Put away acting and posturing as if you're okay and not broken with your religious deeds. Put away self-righteousness. This is included in this call to holiness, right? Put away malice. Put away envy and hatred. Look in verse 22 of uh, chapter 1. Having purified your souls now by obedience to the truth for a what? Sincere brotherly love. Part of this holiness that he's calling us to in this world and what he's calling these believers to is not the classic moral categories that we've grown up learning about. But it's this. Love your brother. Live in the world like this. Not for yourself, but to serve those around you. Right? Right? And so we come to see, man, Peter's definition of holiness is a little bit different than what I, what, what, what I was laid down in front of me, right, growing up, which was just don't watch R-rated movies, right, or dress this way. Just different. It's different. And so we come to see here that now this call for Peter, for these believers in this world, they weren't really kind of struggling with the same kind of like tame suburban struggles that we have, but they're really in the midst of it. And Peter's calling them to a life of holiness. And this broad umbrella, which he kind of really writes here, like every single chapter is just this broad umbrella of, I've rescued you. I've given you a new identity as a child of God to live differently in the world because you have a different love from your heart. You love a different Lord and it's not Caesar, it's Jesus. And because of that, our priorities change. And the words he writes in this week's passage are an extension of what we looked at last week. And just to remind you of what we looked at last week, his call for us to be a wholly distinct people is rooted in our new identity as children of God. See, sometimes it's just kind of like, hey, Jesus lived, died, rose again, and saved you. Okay, cool, that's awesome, right? You became a Christian, let's shove that over here. Now here's your list. Now here's the things that we need to start getting after. And what we fail to do is to connect what Jesus has done and has made us by faith a new children of God, a people, right? And we come to see that identity is what we have to have first. Who are we, right? I'm not just Joe who lives here in this much square foot house and have a job here and this is my wife and these are how many kids I have and this is what I bring in each and every month as far as money goes. We love to define ourselves in terms of those things in our culture. We love to define ourselves in terms of material things. But what is Peter doing here? And what does the rest of Scripture do? It brings us back to our gospel identity. Now we're children. We're children of the Father. We've been brought into a new family. And there's a whole new way of life that God has called us to. Right? Obedience is always rooted in identity. And identity is always purchased by the work of Jesus and our our faith in Him. 
So his call for us to be a distinct and holy people is rooted in our new identity as children of God and a response to his lavish grace toward us in Christ. So here's what we've studied so far in chapter 1. Chapter 1 is all about a blessed, merciful, heavenly father. What kind of God do we have toward us in Christ? We have a God of absolute purity and holiness and righteousness, but Jesus has met those needs on our behalf. And our God is a merciful father toward us in Christ. And this merciful father has caused us to be spiritually alive. Right? He's made us alive. He's, we've been, what the, the term Peter uses, born again. We've been made alive. Our hearts were hard as stone. We lived for this world. Notice the terms in here. Former ignorance, futile ways of your forefathers. God has ransomed us and rescued us from ignorance. He has, by his grace, opened up our minds to see the truth of who he is in Jesus Christ. And he's rescued us out of that and he's given us new life, new identity. We've been born again to a living hope. And why is our hope alive? Because Jesus is alive. Because our hope is rooted in a person. And what he has done what he is doing and what he is coming to do, right? We have a living hope because Jesus rose and is alive. That our current salvation and our future salvation and our inheritance are being kept and preserved by the power of who? Verse 5, chapter 1. God. We're being kept by God. By his power. Are you keeping yourself holy and in the faith on your own strength? No. He who began a good work in you will do what? Bring it to what? Completion. Verse 5, you're being kept by the power of God. This is a work that God has done and is doing in you. God is preserving you. You are not preserving you. God is doing this. He's working in, we're working out. Outflow of his grace. Right? What else did we look at in chapter 1? That we have a Jesus that has come, lived, dies, and rose again, and is coming again. So much emphasis on, on the coming again of Jesus and to set your hope and your eyes toward that. Take your eyes off of your current circumstances, which are terrible, and put them on Christ. And all of these reasons are reasons to look outside of our current mess and pain and situation, to have joy in God and in what he has done, is doing, and will do. This is pretty much First Peter up until this point. Right? He's challenging and encouraging and writing a group of people that are going through it. And are having a tendency to just look down here at the mess. And he's drawing their eyes and their hearts outside of their situation. To see a truth and a reality that transcends what they're living through right now. The thing that we should be looking to and trusting in. But, nevertheless, he says this. Man, I ain't going to lie. It's bad. It's bad. What you're going through is bad. But God has a purpose. He has a reason. Peter squares these suffering believers up and he told them, you better prepare your minds for action. Prepare your minds for something, for for action. I have a purpose for you guys in this exile. Right? Question, why did God bring them here? Why are they here in exile? Just, Just to do a personal spiritual growth work in their lives? That's part of that. We've seen that, right? That this suffering is what? It's producing in us a deep and genuine, authentic faith. But let's look at the scope of what's happening here. From the work of Jesus to what the commandment he gave them before he sent his disciples into the world. And as they're now spreading all over the world with the gospel, what is the grand context there? Go and make disciples. Why is God bringing them into exile? Because God's passionate about his good news spreading across the whole globe. That's why they're there. He's taking those who know him and putting them in the midst of some crazy, um, godless cultures to be a salt and light 
to proclaim him. That's why. Because God's wanting his gospel to spread across the globe. So yes, God's doing some stuff personally in them. But God is also spreading the news of his son Jesus across the entire planet. That's the broader context for why they're there. And so he squares them up and he says, you guys better prepare your minds for action, right? I have a purpose for you guys in this exile to be on mission, to be salt and light in the world. And you got to walk out that door in the morning and it's going to be hard. To stay connected to God, to live and fear him and not fear Caesar. To face suffering and persecution and possibly death. To speak of Jesus in a culture that just rejects him where you're on the margins. It's going to be hard. And that's why it says prepare your mind for action. Prepare your minds for mission. Prepare your minds for as you scatter, as you go. Prepare your minds for action. This is going to be tough. And then he told them to be sober-minded. Sober up, guys. Sober up by, by setting your hope fully on the future return to Jesus where his lavish grace will be fully realized and your suffering will be over. Just look forward to that day. It's hard right now, but press on. There's coming a day when it's going to be over, right? He tells them to sober up. Now, think about this. Um, I'm thinking that maybe in the midst of their suffering, they were drunk or they were consumed with thoughts of fear. Do you ever get so consumed with thoughts of fear, worry, doubt, not knowing what's next? The implications of what has just happened, what's going to be this thing, or how's this going to play out, or, or that. Anybody other besides me lay up at night in bed like, dude, what, like consumed with thoughts of fear? Like everything other than faith, right? And I'm trying to figure out, man, how can I figure out this situation, or make this thing happen, or accomplish this, or meet this need, or make this go away, Right? So when he says sober up, you know what I'm thinking? In the midst of a hard in the midst of a hard mission and a hard culture, where everything around you is saying this, just walk away from Jesus and everything's gonna be just fine. And you won't have to suffer at all. I'm thinking that they were consumed and drunk with thoughts of fear, with thoughts of doubt, with thoughts of throwing in the towel, with thoughts of God, where are you? With thoughts of just walking away from Jesus because it's getting too hard. And you can see why he would tell them to sober up and set their hope fully on the grace that will be brought to them when Jesus comes. I kind of viewed last week's passage like Peter was giving these scattered communities like the proverbial slap in a horror film. Any, any horror film fans in here? Right? Somebody like, yeah, quietly, me. I like being scared. You know, like you have that horror flick. Like you got the one that's like the hero. And there's this guy or this girl over here. And she's like frantic and like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And you just like, Psh! Right? Like, this dude's trying to kill us with a chainsaw. You better wake up and sober up. And we got to get out of here and work together to not get ourselves killed. Right? I think that's kind of what Peter's doing to this, these scattered communities. He's giving them just a big, like, whoosh, Right? Like, sober up, man. This is hard, but I want to draw your hearts to some truths here. Man, you need to wake up from your doubt and your fear and, and looking down here at your circumstances and all the craziness. Man, let me remind you of what's really happening here and why you're here and who you really are in the midst of this culture. That's what Peter's doing, right? Prepare your minds for action. Sober up and head. Shake your head and heart to this fear, anxiety, and doubting because of your trials. I have a mission. I have a purpose for you in exile and suffering. You're my witnesses in this world. Sent to go and point others to me. Set your eyes and your heart and your hope fully on him. <clears throat> now, we see this, that his call for them to be distinct 
in this world is rooted in their new identity. God has called his brand new children and is calling his new children, his people, to a new way of life made possible through Jesus. There is a new identity as the children of God. And it results in a new way of life since we've been rescued out of ignorance. We've been made children, sons and daughters. We belong to a new family. There's an old way of life that they've been rescued from to a new way of life. And now as a part of this new family, this new way of life, is kind of like a like father, like son, right? Like father, like son. Now as obedient children, be holy just as your heavenly father is holy. This is your new dad. This is your new family. This is your new aim. This is your new direction. And as his children, we begin as we love him and worship him and look to him and we learn about him from the scriptures, as we learn about what he loves in this world, what he hates in this world, as we learn about what he's doing in this world, right? We study and we look and we see, man, what is our father about? And what is this thing that I've been rescued from over here? Okay, uh, he's calling me not to my former ignorance, but to something new. And then we start discovering what that new thing is. We begin resembling our heavenly father. We begin resembling this new family that we've been made a part of. Have you ever noticed that kids usually bear resemblance to their parents? Like you can usually tell what kid belongs to like what parent, right? So like here comes my oldest son. He's the loudest dude in the room. Always needs to be the center of attention. Always cracking a funny, trying to make everybody laugh. And I'm always like kind of noticing this. Like I'm kind of annoyed by this. I'm like, man, why is he acting a fool over here? And my wife's like, yeah, he's acting like you. Right? And I'm like, man, am I really like that? She's like, yeah, you really like that. So, you know, just trying to be like his dad, right? My kids are just loud. They're just loud. Why are my kids loud? Well, because I'm loud. Well, why am I loud? Because my dad's loud. He's sitting right over here in the third row. I grew up. He's just loud. Like, I used to be part of a group on Facebook. I'm not yelling. I'm Italian. Like, just, I just talk loud, right? So some things come natural in a family situation. Like kids being naturally loud. But other things need to be learned. Other things need to be learned over the course of a lifetime. And in, 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 all the, in all the letters that we see, basically what you see Paul and Peter doing is writing to communities of churches, of people who have been rescued out of former ignorance. And they're telling them now, this is what this new life looks like as a child of a heavenly father. You're now on his mission. You now want to love the things he loves and hates the things he hates and be about the things he's about in this world. Please frame all the calls to obedience through that lens. Right? Instead of just a God up there saying like, hey, I'm the cosmic killjoy and you can't do that cool stuff anymore and you got to do this stuff over here. You see the difference? It's way different. It's, it's saturated in, in gospel identity and Christ and grace and, and all that. Right? So... This continuing call and thought to be holy as God is holy. This call to be distinct during their time of exile is rooted in these three things in this passage. But um, So now we're going to get into our text here in verse 17. It says this, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So again, here we're, we're talking about now we have a father, but also we have this idea of a judge who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. So all these words and these concepts need to be understood in light of the context. And they all need to be saturated uh, with gospel and grace and mercy. So again, when we come to the scriptures, right, and we see a word like this, father. Some of you, when you hear the word father, 
right? It reminds you of your father. And your father was something other than who our father is in the Bible. And so you can do two things. You can interpret that word in light of your experience. Or you can come and see that our heavenly father is the true and picture perfect grace-centeredness, right? Picture of a father. And we need to let the word and we need to let his grace interpret that word for us. So when we come to this passage and we see things like this, a God who's a judge, right? Or our call to conduct ourselves with fear. We need to interpret these things in light of gospel, in light of grace, in light of all that's been written here. So Peter tells us here that to all those who call on God as father, to us, Peter says, our father is also a judge who judges impartially, meaning this, he doesn't show favoritism. And he tells us that he judges each according to his deeds. God cares about your holiness. He cares about the way you conduct yourself. He's watching. He's watching you. He's watching you in your life. And he's not watching like this, waiting for you to mess up. He's just paying attention. And he sees and he cares. So we see here that we call this judge, we call him father. So we've been brought into this relationship. We don't know. Judge doesn't define the relationship. Father does. Right? Gospel does. Right? There's no condemnation. We have a, a, a relationship, a covenant with this God where he's promised to be our God and for us to be his people, to remember our sins no more and to never leave us and never forsake us. Right? So we need to let that truth, that gospel new covenant truth, frame this idea of our relationship. Can I point out one thing really, really cool to you in this? It's a small thing, but I just, I don't know. It, it, it was just awesome. Look in verse 15. It says, but as he who called you is holy, he who called you, that word call is this. You were in former ignorance. You were content on just living a godless life. And he called you, meaning this. He, he, at some point in time in your life, he reached out, began to be involved in your life and called you out of that. Saved you, rescued you, opened your eyes to the truth of the gospel. God acted first. He initiated you and called you out. And then look in verse 17. And if you call on him as father. See that? See the, see, see the two words there? Before we call on God as Father, before we ever initiate Him in relationship at all, with prayer, with worship, going to Him, before we ever do any of that, who called us first? God called us first. God initiated us first. And so before any of us are calling on Him as Father, He called on us and drew us out of this world. So as we consider God as both Father and Judge, we need to let the gospel, the work of Jesus, saturate and inform these ideas there is a reality of a judgment, but it's, it's not to see if you're in or you're out. For us as in Christ, there's, there's no condemnation. This is not a, a, not a judgment to see, like, am I going to throw you into hell or, or are you going to come into my heaven? It's different than that for those of us who are in Christ. But there is a reality of a judge and a judgment and a God who is watching and he cares about the way that we conduct ourselves in this world. This fear here is more this, a reverential awe, a healthy fear. Like the kind of fear you're supposed to have with power tools, right? Right? You're not just like, oh, like here's this 12-inch miter box, you know? It's like, let me just flip this thing and you know, whip it around. Like, no, like I've pricked my finger with a skill saw. It's not cool. Like, you're going to want to have a healthy fear coming to this thing. But that fear is not leading you to never touch a power tool ever again. You come to this thing knowing that there's respect here. There's reverence here. There's a healthy fear here. It's a fear that pushes us to God, not away. 
It's a fear that pushes us to him, not away from him. Some people think of God in fearful terms. They're afraid of God, and so they run away from him. This is a kind of fear that leads us to God, knowing that he is more powerful than anything in this world, knowing that he's more supreme than anything in this world. And so we see him, right? And we see these things over here that are vying for our attention. Think about, think about it in terms of the context of these believers. There were so many things in their culture that would have been calling them away from Christ and away from the gospel. Think about the social pressures that you have, right? As you, as you consider being faithful to Jesus in your workplace, in your home, and in your family, in your neighborhood, when your friends get together, right? Some of us don't speak of Jesus. Some of us don't claim Jesus. Why? Because we're afraid of social implications and pressures. We're afraid of either being made fun of or being rejected, Now take what you experience on a small scale and blow that up times a hundred. And that's exactly what they're facing here. If you worship Jesus as Lord, you got put on a stake and set aflame. That's what's going on here. You got your head cut off. You got thrown to lions. Hebrews says that men of old were sawn in half. All right. So we're not talking about your neighbor looking at you in the eye and laughing. We're talking about you dying here. And so there's a tendency for these believers to fear who? Rome. To fear Caesar. And to fear those around them. And to live in that fear. And Peter's saying, no, 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 no. Let me tell you who you ought to fear. Let me, let me tell you how you ought to conduct yourselves with fearing God. Fear him. He is judge. He is the one that all these people around here, whom are threatening your life, they're going to bow a knee to him one day. You see that? So it's not like fear like God's going to zap me, right? Tit for tat, the God of karma. You did something wrong, I'm going to flatten your tire for being mean to your kids last week. That's not how this works. It doesn't work like that, right? You got a hair in your meal because you were mean to that guy walking in. Like, God doesn't work that way. That's karma. That's works righteousness. That's tit for tat. That's demerit and merit. God is a God of grace. He lavishly gives freely to those who don't deserve. So this fear here is something that's driving them to God. Away from all the things in their culture that are telling them that it would be much, much easier if you just did it our way. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. This is not a fear, right, where we fall in and out of the favor of God. But let's remind ourselves here, God cares about our holiness. He cares about our obedience. He cares about us conducting ourselves as children in the midst of this culture. And sometimes he exercises his fatherly discipline in our lives. Sometimes he comes down and judges us. Sometimes he comes down and involves himself in our lives with fatherly discipline. Hebrews 13 writes about this. I've experienced the discipline of God in my life. There's been times where I have not acted like a child of God in this world. I have acted according to my former ignorance in this world. I've acted as if the truth of the gospel is not real, that I don't have this new identity in Christ. And I'm like, you know, I think I'm going to walk away from this for a little while because it's not working out for me. And I'm going to try to live according to my former ignorance, the few futile ways of my forefathers. And I'm going to go back to my old lifestyle. You know what God has done to me in those seasons? Patiently, lovingly, caringly, but very, very specifically, met me where I was with conviction, sometimes with admonishment from friends, deep conviction about the way I'm living, 
exercising his fatherly discipline in my life to shake me from thinking that I can go back to something I'm not anymore and to bring me back by his kindness, using his community and other brothers and sisters back to a place where I love God and love alone, him alone. And I'm back to a place where I'm, I'm worshiping him and fidelity and, and, and knowing him as father and, and conducting myself with fear. Not fear of this thing, but fear of him and tying myself close to him because he's more powerful than anything in this world. Do you get it? Do you get it? That's how we need to look at judge. That's how we need to look at the holiness of God. That's how we need to see these things. Okay. I'm like way off my notes here. Anyways, oh, interesting enough, look, 1 Peter 4, 17, I think we have it on the screen here. Later on in, in the uh, uh, letter, Peter's going to write this, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and it begins with us what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God. Peter says, listen, the judgment of God's already begun with the household of God. As the children of God, we've been saved away from our former ignorance. We've been brought out of that. He has dealt with us. He has dealt with our sin. He has dealt with our ignorance there. He's rescued us from us, from it, right? And as the children of God now, we're saved from this former life, these former passions. Now God has called us out of that ignorance, revealed the truth of the gospel to us, and has called us to be his children, holy, set apart. And sometimes God's involvement in our lives as his children, as he comes and this judgment begins with the household of God, he contends with us in our sin. He contends with us. When we stray and we wander away from a faithfulness and a fidelity to him, sometimes in his discipline, he brings us back. And the judgment of God begins with the household of God. So that's how we're looking at this. All right. So grace, like grace lends towards judge. This is a fear in this world that is an awestruck, reverential fear that doesn't lead us to run away from God, but to him. And it needs to be thrown in the backdrop of their culture, right? Rome was, a, Rome was a power, a political and a military force to be feared. And he's saying, no, don't fear Caesar. Don't fear Rome. Fear me. Fear me. They're going to bow at my feet someday. So here's the social pressure to walk away from Jesus because of Rome, because of Caesar. Don't fear them. Fear me. So conduct yourselves with fear. And there's three reasons here that he tells us why we ought to conduct ourselves with fear. The first is that our father is also our judge. He's more powerful. We need to revere him, not the social pressures. The second one is this. We've been ransomed with precious blood. The other reason that we conduct ourselves with fear, reverential fear, where we're, where we're tying ourselves closely to God and worshiping him and not buying into the social pressures over here is because we've been ransomed with precious blood. Verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So awesome. What else is driving my reverent fear in my heart towards God and my desire to be distinct during my time in exile? Because he has ransomed me. He's ransomed me. Ransom has to do with debt, And the required payment to erase that debt and satisfy the one to whom one is indebted. Let me say that again. Ransom has to do with debt and the required payment to erase that debt and satisfy the one to whom we are indebted. And this alludes to this idea of redemption. Redeem means to release from slavery by payment of a price. To buy back with purchase or ransom. And there's this old, old story right here as Peter brings up these words of ransom and redemption that points us back to the people of God when they were in slavery in Egypt. 
where he brought them out of a land of slavery, where he brought them out of that place where Pharaoh was their harsh master and their harsh ruler and didn't love them as a people but abused them. They were in slavery there. And what did God do? He rescued his people. He split a whole sea in half as they passed through and destroyed the enemies of God, brought them out of slavery, redeemed them. And that redemption frames the entire Ten Commandments, right? We looked at that in our Ten Commandments series. Because I'm this, because I've done this, because I'm your Redeemer, and because I'm your Lord, right? Here's what it looks like now to love me and follow me, Ten Commandments. Do you see? Even back in the Old Testament, we see this grace comes, this redemption comes before the obedience. And the redemption and the new covenant, the new relationship with us as the children of God, those who have been redeemed, that frames the obedience. That frames the conduct yourselves with fear. And so as Peter writes here, and he talks about ransom, right? This is an old, old picture, right? That slavery that they ran in Egypt when he brought his people out and redeemed them, that was a big old arrow pointing us to one day when Jesus would come and shed his blood to release us from the slavery, not of Pharaoh, but of sin, death, and hell. See that? This is what God's doing throughout the whole Bible. Man, he's wetting your appetite for Christ. That's what he's doing. The emphasis here of redemption is sinners in our sorry and lowly state. And the picture of all of us that we have in this, in this bondage, in this slavery, this sin-slave market. We can't overcome our sin. We can't overcome uh, this world. We find ourselves failing and falling all the time. All the time. Right? We're enslaved to this. We're held captive by our own sin. Our own, our own fleshly impulses. Paul describes it in Romans that we just kind of follow the, the impulses and the passions of the, of the flesh and of the mind. And if we think it, we do it. And if we feel it and want it, we go after it. That was our picture before Christ. We were just blind to the truth of God. And we were alive to the world. And we just loved the things of the world. This was our situation. Right? We're in need of a divine rescue. We need another to come and buy us out. We can't buy ourselves out. We can't dig ourselves out of this pit. In fact, one of the reasons that has us in this pit of sin is thinking that we can be good enough to overcome that. That's disgusting to God, as Joey prayed. I think the worst and most disgusting sin to God is that of self-righteousness. Is that of thinking that you can be so good that you don't need him. And we see that God contends with both blatant disobedience and such a raw, rigid obedience that thinks it can be so good that it doesn't need God. And even with our our disobedience, we just dig ourselves deeper and deeper into this slavery, deeper and deeper into this pit that we need to be redeemed out of. And even with our climbing out, trying to ourselves, with obedience and law and righteousness, we just dig a deeper hole. We can't buy ourselves out. We need someone to come. Also, too, think about this. It also speaks to the amount of debt we've racked up. In terms of debt, because of all of our sin, rebellion, idolatry, self-centeredness, and self-righteousness, we all have personally accrued an amount of moral debt, right, that makes the national debt look like just, man, pennies. This is an infinite debt here. And in order for us, as we think about ransoming, as, as we think about a price that was paid to purchase us out of a slavery... In order for us to gauge the depth and seriousness of our own captivity and bondage to sin, we have to look at what it cost to buy us out, right? 
So you can, you can gauge how serious the situation is of debt by how much you had to pay to get somebody out of that debt. What was the price that it took to redeem us? Peter tells us that we were ransomed or redeemed, not with perishable things, not with money, gold, silver. We're not, we're not ransomed with material things. Our plight is not material. It's moral. It's spiritual. It's relational. Primarily where we stand to the one we are indebted to. Our sin is stacked up against us, a moral debt that we can never pay. None of us in our sinful and lowly position can pay this price. It is more than we can give. In fact, Psalm 49, 7-8 says this, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. We can't buy ourselves out. Nobody can buy ourselves out. We are truly in a desperate hopeless situation in and of ourselves because of the things we have done in self-centeredness, self-righteousness, idolatry, and disobedience to God. We are in a pit of despair. But what does Peter say? You've been ransomed. You've been ransomed. And in order to gauge how bad our debt situation is, it's compared to the price that is needed to be paid in order to satisfy the debt. So if God showed up and dropped a 20 down on whoever... And you were released. Well, not so bad. It's kind of a slap on the wrist. Like, and maybe you didn't help an old lady across the street that one day. But we see that there was no amount of money that could erase our debt. We see that the moral debt that we owed was so outrageously substantial that it took nothing short of the infinitely valuable, precious, spotless, sinless, holy blood of God's own son in our place on the cross to buy us out of the pit of sin and despair. God literally had to get up off of his throne, come down to earth, live a sinless life, suffer and die a horrible death in your place, in our place, where he bore the wrath of God and he took all the sins of the world, your sin and mine, on his shoulder and suffered and died there alone in order to purchase you out of a sin slave market, in order to purchase you out of that debt and out of that hole, Right? Now, that's what it took to purchase you out of debt. How bad was your situation? Real bad. Real bad. And here's where we see how worship and gratitude play into this idea of conduct yourselves with fear. As the hymn song goes, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left the crimson stain, and he washed it white as snow. We just read it. Right? Here's where we see how this ransom now plays into this conduct yourselves with fear. Conduct yourselves with reverential awe and worship in this world. Why? Because you were so indebted that you and no one else can purchase you out of that hole. But one came down in grace and in love and ransomed you out of there. And because he has done that, your heart's just overwhelmed with grace and gratitude. And you say, man, I want to follow you. I want to worship and love and, and be tied to you. I want to fear you and follow you. That's the idea here. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing what? That you were ransomed. Knowing that you were ransomed. A little bit more about Jesus. Here's the last thing. Our dependence upon the eternal ransoming Christ. Verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in his last times for the sake of who? You. Us. When he says you, that's not individual. That's he's talking to a whole community. He's talking to multiple people there for the sake of you guys, all you churches scattered, 
who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Salvation is the work of God from beginning to end. Salvation is the work of God from beginning to end. He did all the work making our faith and hope completely dependent upon God and no one else. Notice what Peter says, last sentence, so that your faith and your hope are in who? God. God. He has done this ransoming so much so, so fully and finally and completely and exclusively that your faith and your hope are in nowhere else other than God. Notice what Peter says here. I love this. Jesus was what? Foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for our sake. He was foreknown, meaning this. This was always the eternal sovereign plan A of God. Like as far back as you can think, eternity past. I don't know when, but as long as God's been around, which is forever. The eternal sovereign plan A of God was that Jesus be ransomed and crucified in this world. The cross was not God scrambling like, oh man, they disobeyed me. What am I going to do now? Right? I guess we'll do this. Oh, you ate of the fruit of the tree? Jacked it up? I'm so surprised. Uh, plan B, Jesus. Right? He was what? Foreknown. Foreknown. Always Christ. Always his plan. Eternal plan. He was foreknown. Before when? Before the world was created. Before the foundation of the world. Who conjured up this plan? The Father. Who came up with this idea? God did. We did not come up with this idea. This was not a request from us. Hey God, I'm in the sin slave market down here. Right? I'm in a pit of sin and despair. Do you think you can send like your son to come and die in my place and rise again? So that by faith we can kind of get out of this hole and pit. We didn't come up with that. We weren't even thinking about that. God came up with that. That's his idea. Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Jesus living, dying, rising was not a scramble move of God in this world. It was plan A from day one. And this plan was made in eternity past. But, what? Even though it's back there, he's what? He's been made manifest, right? He has come. This plan has come to fruition. When God touched down in this world when he was born of a virgin... And God became flesh. Jesus came. Next thing. Through him, you all are believers in God. He was foreknown in eternity past, but was made manifest. He's come. Through him, you all. This whole community, guys, right now, you're suffering. This letter I'm writing to, you all are believers in God through him. Through who? Jesus. What does Jesus say in John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except through what? Me. I am the way, singular and exclusive. I am the truth, singular and exclusive. I am the life, singular and exclusive. No man, no child, no woman comes to the Father except through me. Me. Through him, you are believers in God. So is there like another way around Jesus to be a believer in God? Nope. Nope. Just Jesus. That's it. There's no Jesus mechanism or God figures it out in the end. It's through Jesus. A conscious... God made and revealed this truth known to you and you place your faith and trust in Jesus. There's only one way to know God. Through him, you are believers in God. Right? Jesus came to make this happen. 
And last thing, God what? Raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And the way that God has planned and accomplished salvation, hear me, has left zero room for you to trust any part of yourself or anyone else or anything else. The way that God has planned and accomplished salvation is so that your faith and hope are exclusively and singularly in God. Nobody else. There is one way. And God has made this way because he's a gracious father. He has done it all. God has raised him from the dead, gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are completely, totally, and exclusively in God. Meaning this for these people. Okay? Meaning this. Here's where the rubber meets the road. You cannot turn away from God and go back to your former ignorance. Why? Because Jesus is literally all you have in this world. And everything else is just futile. And everything else is of your former ignorance. And so I get these guys are wanting to kill you. And I get that you're on the margins and this is hard. I get that. And I'm not denying that at all. I'm just saying this. Where else are you going to go? What else are you going to do? Are you going to go back and act as if you don't know that the lamb's been ransomed and slain for you? Are you going to go back and act as if the cross never happened? Right? Are you going to cave to the social pressures of your buddies making fun of you behind your back? Or not climbing the corporate ladder? Or not being invited into the social circle because you proclaim the name of Jesus? Are you going to act as if that never happened? Are you going to go back and act as if Jesus never came? And as if you were never ransomed? Peter's saying, where else are you going to go? Your faith and hope, what oh God, it's totally in him. There's nowhere else. There's nothing else. It's just him. There's nowhere else to go or turn or pursue. There's nothing else worthy of faith and trust. There's nothing else and no one else that can provide hope. And there's nothing worthy of us placing our total and complete faith and dependence in. Everything else fails us in this world. It is the slain, risen lamb before the foundation of the world who has come and ransomed you. That's it. That's it. And if you think you got anything else going on in this world besides that, you're trusting in something other than the greatest thing in this world. It's Jesus. You know, this, this section right here reminds me of Peter's own words. Right, really, really quick, closing out here. Stephen, man, you can come on up. <clears throat> Jesus feeds the 5,000. They wake up in the morning. He's not there. And they say, oh, there's one less boat. So he went over there. So a few of them go and they go to find Jesus. And they want to find Jesus for what? Because it's breakfast. Like, hey, man, you just gave us dinner. Where's breakfast? Right? That's what they want. And Jesus is like, oh, man, like, I see like you're following me because of just this bread. Let me tell you what it's like to really follow me. I want you to eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's weird. Eat your flesh and drink your blood. Yeah, what I want you to do is I want you to so trust in me and follow me that you're consumed with me. That you take me in and embrace me wholehearted. Not just for these little cool things that I give you over here, but my entire mission. And he talks to them about discipleship. And he talks to them about the radical sacrifice it takes to follow Jesus in this world. And you know what they all do? They all turn away. They're like, no breakfast, no eggs, no bacon. I don't know about this eat my flesh, drink my blood stuff, man. That's kind of weird. I just was hoping to get a sausage egg McMuffin, right? Like, that's weird. No thanks. And so he turns to the disciples, right? In John 6, 66 and 69, 
After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, turns to the twelve that have been with him. He goes, do you want to go away as well? Peter, who's writing this letter, Simon Peter, answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Who who are we going to go to? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter's like, man, I don't know all what you mean by eat my flesh and drink my blood. And this sounds like it's going to probably get me in trouble and crucified upside down. He didn't say that, but he did get crucified upside down. But I don't, there's nowhere else to go. There's nobody else. It's just him, right? So that your faith and your hope are in God alone. God alone. What a joy to hear from these suffering Christians. God, thank you so much for your truth. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for our time. And I, I just trust that you've had your way among us today. And that your spirit has come and has applied the truth of, of your word to my life, to my heart. The things that I'm doubting and not believing. The things that I'm fearing other than you. And I, and I pray that you've applied that too to everybody in here. And have shown them where, where we're falling short. Where we do have fear. Not fear of you, but fear of man. And in that fatherly discipline. And in that fatherly exercising of the judgment that begins with the household of God. That you're reminding them of a son who has lived, died, and rose and ransomed them. And they can run back to you in full confidence. Knowing that you'll accept them again and love them again. And give them confidence to be the children and the people of God. When they wake up in the morning tomorrow and are sent out into the world. With all of its trials, with all of its sufferings, with all of its, with all of its pressures, with all of its fears. That we can fear you. That you're more powerful, right? And attach our hearts to you with reverential awe that we run to you. God, give us the strength to do this. In Jesus' name, amen.